Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, October 19th. I want to thank our producer David Schultz for filling in for me last week. And I want to welcome my son, Sage Trigstad, to the world. As many people have said to me, it was great timing. Election day is only two weeks off and Democrats are well positioned to win the Senate majority. To discuss that, we brought back our very first guest, Cook Political Report Senate Editor Jessica Taylor, who joined us way back in January. After that, we're going to break down an ad airing in a state Democrats need to take the Senate, Maine. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Jero's Gem, my number of the week, is $313.5 million. That's how much money that was raised in this year's third quarter, the months of July, August, and September, by the 12 Democratic candidates for the U.S. Senate who are campaigning for Republican-held Senate seats that are considered competitive by the nonpartisan Cook Political Report. The eye-popping numbers include the $57.9 million raised by South Carolina Democrat Jamie Harrison, who's opposing Lindsey Graham, followed by the $39.4 million by Sarah Gideon in Maine, and $38.8 million by Mark Kelly in Arizona. Five other Democrats topped $20 million in the quarter, Teresa Greenfield of Iowa, Cal Cunningham of North Carolina, Steve Bullock of Montana, John Hickenlooper of Colorado, and John Ossoff of Georgia. Three others top $10 million, Barbara Bollier of Kansas, M.J. Hagar of Texas, and Raphael Warnock of Georgia. Even the smallest number on the list of 12, the $9.2 million raised by Al Gross of Alaska, an independent running with support from the Democratic Party and included in this list, is a huge number, and that money can buy a lot of advertising and mail in Alaska. These stunning fundraising numbers show how fired up Democratic donors are to win control of the Senate and to use that majority to advance legislation that the Democratic-led House has passed but hasn't moved in a Senate now under Republican control by a 53 to 47 majority. Democrats need a net gain of three or four seats for a majority, depending on the outcome of the presidential election, and the fact that they're seriously competing for 12 Republican-held Senate seats shows that they're more likely than not to win control of the Senate and that they have multiple paths to that majority. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your Jero's Gem of the Week. The Anchorage airwaves will never be the same. All right, up next, we're bringing on Jessica Taylor. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Jessica Taylor, the Senate and Governor Race Editor at the Cook Political Report and a friend of the pod. Jessica, it's been a weird year since you joined us last but thanks for coming back on the pod with us. Thank you. Yes, I think we last talked back in January and we've had a pandemic and everything else that 2020 has brought. Yeah. Um, so part of your job is to handicap races and rate the likelihood of seats to flip party control. Uh, you've made some moves on your Senate chart here in the last month of the election. Um, I just checked and you have nine Republican held seats that are either favored to be won by a Democrat or in the toss up category. I'm not sure you could have guessed that's how it would look two weeks out 
from the election when you came on with us in January. What's happened? Definitely not. Since January, we have moved 10 races in Democrats' favor. And as you mentioned, we now have actually uh, 12 races total that are either in that lean or toss-up category that uh, Republicans are defending. And there are just two that Democrats are on offense for. So this map has expanded. You know, I certainly did not think that in October we would be talking about Kansas being competitive, about South Carolina being competitive, about Alaska being competitive. And those are races are very much in play. And then, you know, I think another key thing is that Republicans haven't forced many races, if really any, off the board. If anything, we've had so many races the last few months that have come on that they are still having to worry about. Yeah, it it seems like they have a lot of their own they haven't been able to sew up and they haven't been able to pull on any new Democratic seats, which would always help when you can expand the map. But speaking of like South Carolina and Alaska, states like that, you know, as nas- national political reporters, we're all in touch with these party operatives and consultants. And I was wondering which of your recent ratings shifts has brought the most pushback from Republicans? Um, I think there was a little bit of pushback when I moved South Carolina, just because I do think that it still remains pretty difficult, I think, for a Democrat in a state like that to hit 50 percent. But ultimately, Jamie Harrison doesn't need to hit 50 percent. If he can get 47, 48, which has been about the ceiling for Democrats, he could win this race. And that's because there is still a third party candidate on the ballot, Bill Bledsoe, the Constitution Party candidate. And with some of that $57 million that Harrison brought in, which again, I can't believe I'm saying that a Democrat in South Carolina raised $57 million in one quarter, that he has been a, he has started running digital ads, TV ads, even trying to pump Bledsoe up, which even though Bledsoe has dropped out of the race and endorsed Lindsey Graham and, you know, really didn't have much of a campaign to speak of before this, he remains on the ballot. So I think this is a race that certainly the national tides are influencing in that Trump's numbers have dropped everywhere. And that includes in South Carolina, even in a state that he won by 14 points. But I mean, that's not as big of a margin as he did in even other some other red states. And I think, again, like many of these places, I think that some of that was an indictment of Hillary Clinton as much as it was a vote for President Trump. So there are some closer areas of South Carolina that we have seen moving. But I mean, Lindsey Graham's numbers for someone who has been in Congress for 25 years, uh, they're really dismal. I think this sort of, you know, evolution that he underwent over the past four years from one of the most vocal Trump critics to one of the, you know, most loyal Trump allies has not sat well with, you know, conservatives still kind of view him very skeptically. And then he's really turned off some of those moderates and even conservative Democrats that he was used to getting in re-election. And, you know, his honest and trustworthy numbers are just abysmal for an incumbent. And I think that has enabled Harrison to sort of run a crossover campaign to make appeals, especially to white, older women, women in the suburbs. And, you know, I think that even when I moved it, I think some Republicans still were like, you know, I still don't think it gets there, but I kind of see still because it is so close. Um, you know, I think it's one that certainly Republicans think they will still ultimately pull out. But, you know, I, I really think this one could end up being a surprise on election night. Well, and I want to note for our listeners, you went to college there and know the state very well. Greg? Yeah, some Republican candidates seem to be running a little bit behind Trump. Uh, you mentioned uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, maybe Martha McSally, Tom Tillis fall in there as well. Why might that be happening, Jessica? 
I think that you know these Republican incumbents have really, I think, been stuck between a rock and a hard place, and it's really they have not been able. Trump has put them in a really an unenviable spot, and that if they don't align with him on everything, then the Trump base really punishes them, and they you know either skip that race or aren't fully going to support them as fervently. But then it also turns off independents, so it's sort of a no win situation. I think you have people like Tom Tillos that had broken with Trump very briefly on the wall funding last year. And while I think he's repaired some of his numbers since then, uh, still clearly not fully. Um, Martha McSally, you know, when she was in the House, she was seen as, you know, a more sort of center right member, um, moved very far to the right in order to win that primary in 2018 and never moved back. Um so, I mean, I think Joni Ernst, too, she's running behind President Trump in some of these places. And I did really think that, you know, when we got the Supreme Court vacancy, that these numbers would tighten. We have not seen that. Um, and in fact, I think after that, you know, first week in October with President Trump's very poor debate performance that I think just, you know, sort of shut the door for many suburban women that were even maybe remotely still thinking about voting for him, um, that they want to, you know, sort of hold Senate Republicans accountable for being enablers almost. Then his COVID diagnosis, I think, pushed that issue right back into voters' minds that, again, they don't feel like Senate Republicans have held him accountable on some of this. So I think they're willing to independents and swing voters and, you know, people that maybe were more moderate Republicans that are fleeing the Republican Party are going to hold them accountable. And that's not a winning coalition in a general election. Another contest that's been a mainstay in your toss-up category is Maine. Why has Senator Susan Collins, a 24-year senator who has won three elections by wide margins in such political peril this year? I think Collins is the perfect example of just how hard it is to sort of ride that middle and a Republican party that is rapidly changing has changed over the past four years. And I think is virtually unrecognizable from the, you know, Republican party that she joined when she came into the Senate in the nineties. Um, she's the last new England Republican there. And I think there aren't going to be any more probably after this, if I had to sort of put a pinky on the scale, I think that this race is sort of moving away from her. Um, you know, her Supreme Court vote for Brett Kavanaugh, uh, I think, was really necessary to ward off a primary challenge. Uh, Governor Paul LePage there, a sort of Trump acolyte, was really talking about primarying her. So she had to, I think, take that tough vote that got a lot of sort of liberal grassroots excited against her and raising money. And then while she has been one of just two senators and the only one that is up for reelection this year to break with Republicans pushing forward with Barrett's nomination, I still don't think it helps her because it brings the Supreme Court issue back center focus right now when she doesn't need it to be. And you have conservatives that are, again, upset that she's bucking the Republican Party. And you have centrists and Democrats that she may have gotten that still don't trust her. They're like, well, she's going to do this right now. But is she going to go back to, you know, voting for the Brett Kavanaugh's of the world? So I think she's sort of that that vote. And I think her impeachment vote, too, I think lost her a lot of credibility with those sort of, you know, unique main voters that she was used to getting. And I think the party of Donald Trump, unfortunately for Susan Collins, just can't include a lot of people like her. Now, if Trump loses, as he appears to be on track in the polls, is there sort of a reckoning 
within the Republican Party. How long does that take? I mean, Susan Collins would be the type of person you want there. But I think the ironic thing is that sort of Trumpism may end up pushing her out. And you mentioned there are 12 uh, Republican-held Senate seats in competitive categories. How about any seats that could flip from Democratic to Republican? Is there any chance Senator Doug Jones of Alabama pulls this out? And what's your read on uh, Michigan, the other Democratic held seat that's competitive. The good news for Republicans is that I think that they are very likely to pick up Doug Jones's seat there in Alabama. And even though he is, I think, running a very good race, he's outspending uh, former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville, who's not raised a ton of money. Being a Republican in Alabama in a presidential year that, you know, doesn't have a sex scandal against you, you can win. So I think that's probably, you know, what I'm thinking in my head of how many Democrats need to flip while it's three net that they need in order to get to 50. I really think of they have to flip four seats because they're going to lose Alabama. And I think keeping Michigan on the board, while I still, we still rate it as lean Democrat, I think it's important though is that it's not off the table. And we see Democrats and Republicans, the national parties and super super PACs spending a lot of money here. And so that's, you know, money that they would certainly like to be spending elsewhere. And I mean, Gary Peters, we've seen some closer polls lately. I'm skeptical of some of those because when we look at where President Trump's numbers are in Michigan overall, there's still a lot of undecideds in the Senate race. So I would still rather be Gary Peters at this juncture than John James, the Republican nominee. But James has been a very impressive candidate. He's been raising, um, you know, even money essentially with Peters. They have about the same cash on hand right now. And Democrats can't overlook this race. And I think that, you know, if they were to somehow pick this one off, it makes that, you know, Senate control and that I think getting to those four seats is much easier than, okay, now you may need five, really. Seems like the lone stubborn race on the board that hasn't seemed to move at all, all cycle, is Kentucky. And I'm wondering if that's because of McConnell and his strength, or if it's because of the red lean of Kentucky, or if it's because of Amy McGrath. And and would it be different with a different Democratic candidate? I think it's sort of a combination of all of those things. Listen, I think even leaving an unlikely Republican has been kind of generous, and that's sort of a nod to the amount of money that Amy McGrath has brought in. But I think much of her money has been this, you know, sort of rage donating that we've seen that people want to take out Mitch McConnell and they're going to donate to her. She has not run an impressive campaign from the start. She got off to a, you know, rocky start when she announced and, you know, she was not a great house candidate either. And despite all of these other Democrats winning in 2018, she did not, um, She's had some turnover on her staff with consultants and and managers and things. And, you know, she had some good – they had a debate last week where I think she did kind of hold McConnell to to a little bit better. um, And she got sort of a catch slogan out of there that, you know, McConnell saying that, you know, he just – her whole message is that I'm a mom, I'm a Marine, and I've been here too long. So that's kind of a a good summation of her campaign that maybe if she'd kind of been – packaging that better but she she had a that primary challenge from Charles Booker that I think she overlooked and wasn't as quick to recognize some of the racial strife that was happening there especially in Kentucky and McConnell McConnell is a political animal and he wasn't going to overlook his own house even as he's you know focused on the broader message and 
I think ultimately this is a case of where money can have diminishing returns that we have just not seen the spending moving the needle at all here. And I think it's far likelier that Mitch McConnell is going to be the Senate minority leader come 2021 than he's going to be a former senator. We'll have to leave it there. Jessica, we really appreciate you coming on Down Ballot Counts today. Absolutely. Great to be back with you guys. We can make it these last few weeks. (laughs) We can do it. You can follow Jessica on Twitter at Jessica Taylor. Okay, up next, we're heading to Maine. What Susan Collins says and what she does are two different things. She says she's pro-choice, but that's not how she votes. Susan Collins lost me when she put Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Collins voted for 181 Trump judges, anti-choice judges, including his current Supreme Court nominee. Susan Collins put Roe v. Wade at risk. Susan Collins caves every time we need her to stand up. I can't trust Susan Collins to protect women's rights. I just can't. I can't vote for Susan Collins again. Never again. That was an ad from Senate Majority PAC, the super PAC aligned with Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Maine is firmly in the Democrats' path to the majority, and the party knows it'll need to flip plenty of former supporters of Republican Senator Susan Collins to defeat her. Greg, what did you hear? Yeah, Cal, so this spot by Senate Majority PAC, uh, what struck me is that this uh, ad features exclusively women narrating the ad, and they're all labeled former supporters of Susan Collins on the screen. And they attack her votes for Trump judicial nominees, including Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court in 2018, and Amy Coney Barrett, Trump's newest Supreme Court nominee, to the federal bench in 2017. Now, Collins' campaign note that most of the 181 Trump judicial nominees she voted for, that's also noted in the ad, had support from at least one Democrat and were bipartisan uh, support votes. At a debate last Thursday, Collins said she hadn't decided yet if she would support Barrett for the Supreme Court, though Collins said the vacancy should be filled in a new presidential term and by the next Senate in January. Collins is a lonely moderate in an overwhelmingly conservative 53 Republican Senate, one of just two Republicans from a state Trump lost in 2016. And uh, Barrett should have the votes to win confirmation, even if Collins votes no, Kyle. Okay. Before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. Let's first review last week's question and answer. And last week, uh, Kyle, you were not here, but I asked who was the last Maine U.S. Senator defeated for re-election. And on a Twitter poll, I gave the choices of Edmund Muskie, William Cohen, Margaret Chase Smith, and William Hathaway. Pretty tough question, actually. Kyle, do you have a shot at it? I gotta say, I have no idea. What What is it? Who is it? The answer is William Hathaway, who was defeated for re-election in 1978 by William Cohen, six years after Hathaway defeated Margaret Chase Smith as she was seeking a fifth term. A tough question, a very tough question, but congratulations if you got it right. And now for this week's question. If Arizona Democrat Mark Kelly defeats Republican Senator Martha McSally, he and Senator Kirsten Cinema would give Arizona two Democratic senators. This is atypical for Arizona, a state that's voted more Republican than Democratic in federal elections. And my question is, in what decade did Arizona last have two Democratic U.S. senators? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We will post the question as a Twitter poll with four choices, 
and I'll give the answer and ask a new question on the next episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. But before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Kyle, tomorrow the 20th is the deadline for national party committees and many super PACs to file their receipts and spending for September. Thursday the 22nd is the deadline for candidates, national party committees, and super PACs to file yet another campaign finance report, the pre-general report that will disclose donations and spending in the first 14 days of October. And there are more candidate debates this week. There's one today, Monday the 19th in Georgia, for the special U.S. Senate election with Senator Kelly Leffler, Republican Congressman Doug Collins, and Democratic Pastor Raphael Warnock. And there's also a big Senate debate on Thursday, just before the presidential debate between Kansas Democrat Barbara Bollier and Republican Congressman Roger Marshall. Both of those are going to be good races to watch. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you next week. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, super fun, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to the Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.